to Totalus Rankium. This week, Liam Taft. Part one. Hello, and welcome to American Presidents Totalus Rankium. I am Jamie. I'm Rob, ranking all of the presidents from Washington to Trump, and this is episode 27.1, William H. Taft. Is there a difference between toffee and taffy? <laughs> yeah, I think so. People talk about saltwater taffy, don't they? Yeah. I'm not entirely sure what it is. It's an American thing, I don't yeah. know. Maybe it's like our fudge. But I don't think it's toffee. No. Well, maybe it is. I don't know, though. Well, fudge isn't salty. No. I don't know. I just flavour it. See, we ask the important questions in this podcast. That's what we're about, as I was ranking. Well, uh, before we go into what Taffy is, um, and before we look into William Taft, we've we've got a couple of oops, we got that wrongs to deal with, uh, which we've not had to do many in this no, series, that's which true. I'm quite pleased with. That's true. Uh, but we definitely need to do this. So, cue the sad music. First of all, Roosevelt's score. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, we said he got 49.50, but he did not. Uh, we added up wrong, uh, <laughs> which is embarrassing, but never mind. Uh, fortunately, though, it didn't change anything. He is still in second place with a score of 48.50. Hang on. Uh, <laughs> Are you re rechecking yeah. our adding there? 34, 38.5, that is correct. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it looks like somebody worked it out wrong. Mystery. The guy who does the sound. Yeah, sound guy. He, I mean, not many people know he is also our, our podcast mathematician. <laughs> uh, not for much no, longer. Not. Anyway. Uh, um, welcome to the Dallas Rankium. <laughs> we are Taft Part 2. Do we have to cut both roles too? Yes. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Anyway, so that, that that's our first oops, we got that wrong. Uh, number two uh, is the odd correction um, ah. this has already been corrected if you downloaded and listened to our uh, Roosevelt part 2 in anything other than the first two days it was released uh, you can just ignore this part because I've gone in and corrected it because I don't want people to be misinformed we try and keep it accurate yeah. in this podcast even if we do mention turkeys occasionally um, <laughs> yes uh, however if you did listen to the episode in the first couple of days of downloading uh, I said that Lieutenant Ord, who led the charge up uh, Samwon Hill, uh, was a black officer. And he, of course, was not a black officer uh, because the black soldiers were not allowed to be officers. So Ord was a white officer who led a black regiment. Apart from correcting that one detail, though, I have not changed anything, really, from the episode um, because we covered the fact that Ord did not receive a Medal of Honor because of the obvious racism. Well, it's still obvious racism. Yeah. It was just racism directed at the regiment rather than Ord as a person. So uh, I, I've done very little to the episode, but there was a slight edit there, just in case you've heard it. So um, there you go. Oh. That's our two oops, we got that wrong. Uh, but now we get to go into William Taft. The exciting one I've heard. Have you heard, have you heard anything about Taft? No. I was doing a, a, a pub quiz thing the other oh, day. Yeah. And the question was, and this was in the hard section, who was the president of the United States after uh, Teddy Roosevelt? William Taft. Yeah, exactly. Yes. That, that's, how, that's how little he is talked about. He appears in the hard section <laughs> of quizzes nice. about who was this president. Uh, so there you go. 
okay well let's go into it shall yeah. we let's let's start um let's have oh here we go um a bold eagle yeah. sitting on top of the matterhorn it's a big pointy mountain <laughs> cheers all right <laughs> Can't get more American than that, can you? Yeah. Well, I, I can change it. I can have the bald eagle sent up the White House. Uh, again, you see, I wasn't, I wasn't planning to start in the United States. <laughs> and you, we're planning on starting. Uh, I wasn't going to tell you, but it's not the United States, and you have gone for as United States as possible. But it's fine. I'm going to go for it. Eagle on top of the White House, yeah. Yeah, go on. Okay, start with an eagle on top of the White House. Bold eagle. Uh, that eagle is very bold. It has <laughs> has an American flag tattooed on its left wing. Yeah, yeah, it does. Um, a very sort of sort of sideways and blocky looking eagle as well, um, because this is not a real eagle or indeed a real White House. It is a drawing of an eagle and a drawing of a White House or sort of a painting. It, it's a flag. That's what it is. Yeah. It is a flag yeah. flapping in the breeze of a, a bold eagle on top of the White House, and you zoom out of this flag. And it is on a flagpole that's just sticking in the middle of a jungle somewhere. <laughs> smooth. Really nice. Very smooth, yeah. <laughs> it makes sense, because everyone knows that the army uh, in early 1900s uh, walked around with flags, with bald eagles and lighthouses on them. Well, of course, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you're in a jungle, and there are plenty of American soldiers surrounding this flag. And you zoom out some more, and you, you got bird's eye view, bald eagle view you could say, of this jungle yeah. with lots of soldiers around the flag, but then you notice some other soldiers who are clearly not American soldiers who are creeping Ooh. towards the American soldiers, but then you've zoomed out too much you, all you can really make out is is the, uh, the jungly area, you've gone too far, that's when you start hearing the gunshots Oh. Yeah. So or, or like bang, 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 sort of thing. Uh, yeah, pretty much. As uh, guns go. Ge general or like a war, war type noises. That's oh, okay. what you're hearing. Mm. Yeah. Um, but oh, you're, you're still zooming out. You're zooming out. Um, yeah. Okay. Past the jungle, over the beaches, into the sea, and then you swing round, and you come face to face with a bold eagle on top of a white house. Uh, again, it's a flag. Uh, this flag <laughs> is on a ship. I mean, this is the original American flag. Look it up. That's what it looked like. Yeah. Um, and on this ship, as the camera sort of pans down the ship, you see a large man with a wonderful moustache just peering into the distance at this war-torn island. Nice. And there you go. That is when that cartoony bald eagle uh, suddenly f swoops down in front of the screen, sort of Pink Panther style. Uh, he's just a cartoon, and that's it. Just starts up. It's very, very seventies, very eighties opening. Oh, God. Yeah, Oof. the bald eagle sort of flies across and then pulls the name William Taft onto the screen. Nice. Yeah. So was the mustachioed man Taft? Yes. I don't want to give too much away, but yes, yes, he was. So Taft with the tash. Tashy Taft. Tashy Taft. That's that's him. Nice. Okay, ready to start now. Yeah, let's do this. Let's do this. We're not starting with William Taft. We're starting with Alfonso Taft. Oh, what an American name. Alfonso Taft is one of the best names that we have come across in this series. Alfonso Taft was a descendant of Irish Scots immigrants. Uh, the Taft family had done well enough for themselves since coming over in the uh, 15 or 1600s. Wait, sorry, Irish? Irish Scots. And 
Alfonso is like a very Latin, like an Italian name. It certainly sounds like it. You mean you don't know of the the Irish Scot clan, the Alfonsos? No, I'm a sinister. Yeah, hard. <laughs> well known for their pasta making and every other stereotype. Uh, cork, I believe. Uh, see, you can't move for Alfonsos and Cork. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm guessing uh, after a few centuries, the Alfonso name was just a name that had been sort of attached mm. to the family. Uh, but yeah, Taft is more the uh, the Irish Scots name. Anyway. They've done well enough over the past couple of centuries or so since coming over to the New World. Uh, they're not part of the super, super elite uh, like Teddy Roosevelt was, but they were doing well enough for themselves. They certainly weren't just the average family. Um, Alfonso, for example, went to the same college as the now famous Sam Colt, inventor of the Colt. Bang, bang, pistol gun. Bang! Yes, uh, you can tell I know my guns. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Colt 45. There is a story of Colt, Alfonso, and some others sneaking out on the 4th of July, 1830, stealing a cannon from a Revolutionary War veteran who lived nearby, and then after lots of drunken huzzaring, firing the cannon at their college, which wow. is an amazing story. Uh, I saw it in several places, including on Wikipedia, and it's like, oh, I've got to get more information on this. Unfortunately, it was one of those times where if you dive into it a bit deeper, you realise it's probably not actually true. Um, It would appear that Alfonso had left the college by this point. However, apparently Colt did do this, though. Uh, Yeah, apparently the cannon was stolen. Whether it was fired at the college is debated, and um, whether Alfonso was there is is actually unlikely. But there you go. It's a little story for you. uh, It also goes to show that alcohol and war machines don't mix well. Uh, No, no. But uh, what does mix well with war machines? Good question. (laughs) (laughs) Might as well be booze. Um, Anyway, Alfonso's life follows uh, pretty much the same story we've come across for most well-to-do families. Alfonso trained to be a lawyer, and then he headed off west and settled in Cincinnati. He soon became one of the most prominent citizens in Ohio. Uh, He was on the board of trustees for the University of Cincinnati and for Yale. Uh, He got involved in politics. Mm. By the time that William is born, the Taft family are now starting to enter the elite higher echelons of society. It's Alfonso who bumps them up a bit in the pecking order. Anyway, at the age of about 31, Alfonso meets and then marries someone with an equally fantastic name. You ready for this one? Oh, go on. Fanny Phelps. (laughs) (laughs) A name that I should probably say is far more amusing for us in Britain than it probably is for our <laughs> yes. US listeners. Because Fanny doesn't... What's so funny about that? <laughs> Fanny doesn't mean the same in, in Britain than it does in no. America. Um, different part of the body. Spoilers laugh at Fanny packs. Yeah, that, they sound very funny over here. Uh, Fanny Phelps uh, was <laughs> the, <laughs> the daughter of a prominent judge. And over the next 11 years, they have five children together. And there you go, lovely, happy household with Alfonso Taft and Fanny Phelps. First two children survived, but unfortunately the next three all died young. The last one only survived a few months, but still outlived his mother, Fanny Phelps. That was a good good reaction from you there. You looked sad for a moment, but then the name kicked in again, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
Yeah. Uh, we, we are 12. Um, we really are. Anyway, uh, so unfortunately, in his early 40s, Alfonso found himself a widower. What, what happened? Uh, she died not long after the birth of their fifth child, though, so probably complications Some to do sort of with that. infection or something. Yeah. Anyway, Alfonso mourned Fanny Phelps uh, for approximately a year and a half and then married Louise Torrey. That's a much better name. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's a name we're going to be able to say without giggling like schoolboys, <laughs> that's for sure. Louise's name was actually Louisia, but everyone called her Louise. Uh, and Louise was currently writing uh, scathing and satirical letters for a Yale newspaper with two other women who had to pretend to be brothers to get their work published. That's similar to what they used to do for the newspapers. Remember you were talking about the, the old, like, political, they used to write snarky letters in yes uh, pretending to be the what people. we're now starting to see is women doing it uh, as well and using male pseudonyms so they can get published we are starting to see the first wave of feminism kick in uh, and mm. uh, Louise was very much part of that anyway Alfonso and Louise had a child in 1855 but he unfortunately died of whooping cough a year later but then in 1857 William Howard Taft was born in the Taft family home this is a two-story yellow brick house in a fashionable part of Cincinnati. Yellow brick house? Yeah, yellow brick house. Is this in Oz or is it on the way? It's the same contractors, but I don't think it, was, okay. it, it wasn't nearby. Um, right. Yeah, I, I'll quote Louise here. He is very large for his age and he grows fat every day. He was a big baby. Apparently, William was a very happy, smiley child who beamed away all day at everyone who came close to him. So, he's a cheerful little baby, if a bit oh. rotund. Growing up, the house was close enough to the edge of the city that uh, little Will and his siblings, who were growing in number, um, could go and play in the woods and the streams nearby which is nice. Uh, younger brother Horace claimed that uh, all the children in the family learned to swim uh, in the streams nearby, uh, not because anyone taught them to, but they just had to learn because they would push each other into the river for fun. Little Will was only four years old when the war broke out. Oh. Yeah, like many places in the United States, there was support uh, for the North and the South in Cincinnati. But Al Alfonso and Louise were uh, very much anti-slavery in their views, uh, so they were firmly union-supporting. Uh, apart from that, the war did very little to affect uh, Little Will's life. His father sold war bonds and gave speeches supporting emancipation, and Little William just got on with being a child, really. And the end of the war came, and that was about it. There was much celebration mm. in the city, but uh, he was a little kid. So there you go. Fair enough. He just didn't do much during the war. I just lazy, I think. Yeah. And a coward, a traitor to his country. Exactly. Anyway, after the war, Alfonso got more involved in politics. Uh, and he was appointed as a judge on the Ohio Superior Court. Uh, the family were very proud of Alfonso becoming a judge, and it was instilled into the children that being a judge was the most noble profession a person could do. Well, I mean, look at the wigs. Oh, they don't have wigs Can't over there. Can't get more noble than that. What? They don't do the wigs over there, do they? Don't they? No. Then what's the point of being a judge? That's a very good point. Uh, well, Alfonso said, I'll quote him, to be Chief Justice of the United States is more than to be President. So if you're top dog judge in the Supreme Court, according to Alfonso, that is more important than being President. Well, you're directly involved in lawmaking, aren't you? 
or interpretation or interpreting the law which affects other judging courts, you could so. say yes Judge, yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah remember you've got congress to make the laws you've got um the president to act out the laws and you've got uh the supreme court to judge the laws that's how it works equal apparently in power um <laughs> However, the family uh, had grown to six children uh, by this point, and the expense of education was more than the wages of being a judge, even if it was one of the top judges in Ohio. Uh, so Alfonso reluctantly quit his job as a judge and went back to private practice. Uh, but still, he was still involved in politics. He put his name forward to be nominated by the Republicans to become the governor of Ohio. Uh, but unfortunately for Alfonso, his friend got the nomination instead. His friend obviously being Rutherford B. Hayes. Because oh, I've heard of him. We're in that area of the world, and all these people high up in Ohio know each other. Weird. Meanwhile, little Will, he's growing up. Uh, pressure was being put on him to do well. His two elder half-brothers uh, were quite a bit older than him, yeah. and they'd gone to Yale by this point. Uh, Peter had graduated with the highest marks in the school's history up until this point. That's... I was hoping to say, in the world. Well, uh, up until that point in Yale, yes. yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, no one likes an older sibling who constantly gets high marks and everything. It's just annoying. Uh, but that, that was that was Will's life at this point. Uh, also, Will uh, was more likely to procrastinate than do work. Uh, he spent a lot of his time just reading things that he fancied reading in tr under trees outside, uh, rather than doing what he was told to do. Uh, he avoided other boys his age who would tease him about his size, uh, because he was a big Aww. baby and he stayed quite large as he was growing. Oh. At the age of seven, he was the fifth in his class at school. That's not bad. That's not bad. Alfonso took him to one side and said, Mediocracy will not do for you, Will. Oh. <laughs> I mean, you've got a class of four and you came fifth. It's That's a good point. I didn't think to check how big the class was. <laughs> I just thought that was quite harsh thinking yeah. classes are usually maybe about 30 children, but that's today, isn't it? You're right, that was probably a class of four. Anyway, Will sucked his ideas up, because by the age of 12, he was top in his class by quite some margin. He was doing very well with his studies. It was around this time that Alfonso and Louise left for Europe, leaving the children behind. Uh, Alfonso wrote to Will from Rome, recounting the tale of Julius Caesar's death at the base of Pompey's statue. Alfonso had just visited the site and was quite excited, so wrote to his son about how nice it was here. Shame you can't see it. Love and kisses, Pops. No real reason to mention this in the story. It's not a big deal, uh, but it was a Rome link. Of course. I missed that. So uh, I high-fived myself while researching. Yeah. Nice. Anyway, Will grew more and carried on with his studies. Having Louise as one of the earliest feminists in the country as a mother started to pay off in uh, Taft's work, and he, he showed some quite forward-thinking ideas when he was at school. For example, he wrote, The result of co-education of the sexes shows clearly that there is no mental inferiority on the part of girls. Give the woman a ballot and you will make her more important in the eyes of the world. In the natural course of events, universal suffrage must prevail throughout the world. Ooh, that's, that's pretty, pretty good. good. Fairly early on as well. I mean, we're, we're still yeah. in the uh, 1870s here. Uh, late 1870s, wow. to be fair. Yeah. But yeah, um, that's, that's pretty good. So, there we go. Well, USA gave 
the ropes were in before. We will be covering all of this soon. Don't you worry. Um, Anyway, William, by this point, uh, incidentally, was terrified of letting his father down. I mean, there was a lot of parental pressure for him to do well. Uh, Once William enrolled into Yale, his frustrations and fears remained. He wrote home to his father, A fellow can work hard all the time and still not get perfect marks. You may expect great things of me, but you must not be disappointed if I do not live up to your expectations. Aww, not very confident. He doesn't sound... Yeah, the, the, the pressure to do well is on, uh, definitely, especially since his two half-brothers went to Yale and both did fantastically well. Do you think it's like a, do you think it's imagined pressure, or do you think his dad was kind of just saying, you need to do I well? I get the sense that it is real pressure. Uh, based on that mediocrity mm. quote, but like you say, maybe it was a class of four. So, <laughs> still, uh, either despite or because, or who knows, of uh, the pressure, uh, William studies hard when he's at Yale. Not only does he study hard, he also gets into a sport that finally suited his build, and that is wrestling. He earned the nickname Big Bill from his classmates whilst he was at Yale, um, and was generally well-liked for his mostly easygoing nature. One day in his first year, he won even more friends when he stepped into a tug-of-war. The sophomore class had challenged the freshmen, and they were winning in this tug-of-war, until William stood up and took the rope and just (laughs) turned the tide, apparently just anchoring the rope in place as soon as he took it. Just tie around his waist and yeah. just stood there. So, yeah, he got some more friends, which is nice. Uh, according to classmates, Big Bill was not naturally gifted at his academic work, but he made up for it in hard work. Uh, he, he worked all hours under the sun to make sure he was doing well, and in the end, he graduated second in his class and was elected the class orator, much to Alfonso's delight. There was no, why did you only come second, why not first? It was genuine pride from father there. At Yale, yeah. Uh, I mean, the whole uh, graduating and doing really well was marred slightly, however, by the news that Peter, remember his half-brother who came top in his class, um, had suffered Mm -hmm. a nervous breakdown. The constant pressure he had put on himself and had been put on him became too much. Uh, Peter was placed in a sanitarium against his wishes, writing to his father, pleading to be let out and be drawn closer to the family rather than being pushed away. Alfonso essentially said, no, you're in there for your own good. I'm off to go and see William's graduation. Oh, and in the sanatorium, they'll probably beat the demons out of him. It's not a good word, sanatorium, is it? Cold baths. No. Still, we're not doing Peter, we're doing William, so (laughs) we get to carry on. Uh, William graduated, and guess what he did? Go on, wild stab in the dark. Oh, did he? I'm just guessing here. But did he go into law? No. He went into shark preservation. Yeah. Wow, that is quite unique. (laughs) Sorry, misread. No, it is law. Cincinnati law. Yes, Ah. that's what he did. He went to Cincinnati Law School uh, because he wanted to follow in his father's footsteps and become a judge. While studying, he used his father's contacts to get a job as a court reporter. So he'd write up the reports for a newspaper of what was going on in the court. Um, When he wasn't doing that or studying the law, he worked in his father's law firm. So, doors opening all over the place for him. Uh, The closeness with his father caused some tension. Uh, Alfonso chastised his son for leaving the office early one day to go and watch the boat races. So I thought you were serious about becoming a judge, son. There you are, just off 
having fun watching boats. I mean, you've got you've got a boat hat on everything. It's ridiculous. So exactly. Take it off. Uh, but still, William didn't let this deter him. He carried on with his studies. He graduated from law school, and became an assistant prosecutor of Hamilton County, which is nice. Yeah. A position essentially given to yes. him because of who his father was. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Alfonso had risen well in the Republican Party by this point. And uh, yeah, so this, this job was essentially given to him. So he's 23 at this point, uh, and he learned quickly from this role. Uh, he found becoming a, an assistant prosecutor for a county was far more educational than law school, like learning the the ropes on the job. Uh, and he did well enough in this job. He made no huge splashes. He just kind of got on with it, really. Uh, apart from one evening when a newspaper published an anonymous letter attacking Alfonso, while also hinting that the letter had been written by Louise Taft, as in Alfonso's wife, William's mother. So his wife potentially may have perhaps written a note attacking her husband? Um, no, but that's what the paper made it look like. Yeah. Right, yeah. Uh, so, yes, that's what people might think. Uh, as you can imagine, William was outraged by this. Uh, he stormed out to confront the editor, a man named Rose, and came across him on a street corner. An argument broke out between them, and William lifted Rose off of his feet, and I'll quote, and dashed him into the pavement. William then hammered the editor's head against the pavement until Rose promised to leave town. Uh, okay. Yeah, that story comes out of nowhere, doesn't it? <laughs> it, it I didn't expect like a bite the curb. Bloody hell. <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, apparently William had a bit of a temper. Apparently he was really easygoing almost all the time, but when he lost it, he really lost it. Oh, yeah, so I mean, he just beats Gosh. a man and chases him out of town because he didn't like what what he'd written. Um, nice. Yeah, mm. uh, I spent quite a while trying to dig into this story because just seeing that as a one-off sentence somewhere, it's like there's got to be more to this. I managed to find yeah. a bit more than what I originally found, which is the detail I just included. But where I found it also suggested that most people thought he had done a good thing and this Rose fella was up to no good. But, I mean, that seems a little biased in my opinion. <laughs> I guess it'd be like now, though, somebody did the same to was it Paul Dacre, the guy that used to run the Daily Mail. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, we shouldn't be doing that to people, but... <laughs> yeah, uh, it's unfortunate I couldn't find more details on this. Um, but just know that William's got a bit of a temper. Anyway, he then starts to get into politics, because it's the natural progression. Yale, law school, beat a man's face into the pavement. Politics. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, he spent most of his time, to begin with, just stomping for other Republicans, uh, giving uh, speeches, trying to get people to, to come out and vote. Um, again, using his father's contacts, William was soon offered another job, and this time from none other than the president himself, President Arthur. That's how well-connected Alfonso really? has become. Yeah. Wow. Uh, William was to be the collector of internal revenue for the Cincinnati district. Exciting. Yeah. That also sounds like a, like the postmaster job. It sounds like a job where you get a lot of money if you are that way inclined. Uh, well, yes, there is that. Uh, we are certainly in the middle of uh, the Gilded Age with all the patronage. Uh, you get the job because of your name rather than your ability, which is exactly why William is getting this job. <laughs> 
another reason why he was given the job uh, is that he was seen as the perfect man for the job because he was so young, he had not developed any enemies yet, so no one could object to him being put in the position. Uh, apparently there were some arguments over who should have got this job, and he was very much a compromise, no one could object to him. Um, he yeah. was very young for the role, uh, but people hoped that would work for him. However, William soon found that he did not like this job. To put it bluntly, he wasn't ready for it. He'd had no experience for work like this. Um, and he also didn't approve with how the job was being done. Now, remember, slap bang in the middle of patronage here. Yeah. The party expected certain things. If you had been given this job, you had to act in a certain way. Uh, one day, a letter arrived telling William how much money he was going to donate to the party that year. Yeah, William uh... wasn't best pleased, but did it anyway. Okay, fair enough, this is how it works. However, he drew the line at monitoring his employees and whether they had donated the recommended amount or not. So even the people that worked at, like, the cleaner... Uh, well, Political employees to... working under, yeah. Okay. This angered some of the more conservative in the Republican Party, annoyed that this youngster didn't know how it was done. So he, he started to lose support. <laughs> then William received orders to fire some of his employees because they were supporting the wrong Republican in a congressional race. So they were supporting a Republican, but not the one that the party wanted them to, or at least certain head honchos yeah. in the party. Uh, again, William was outraged by this. Uh, the men he'd been told to fire were, in his mind, some of his best employees. Uh, so in an attempt to keep them, he wrote to President Arthur personally, telling the President that the men he was being told to fire were loyal to the Republican Party, they just wanted a different Republican to get the nomination. Surely that's not a fireable offence. That's democracy, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> In the end, uh, he wasn't forced to fire the men, um, but William had had enough of politics. He didn't like this uh, at all, so he decided to get out, and instead he set up a law firm with one of his father's old partners. Again, I, I doubt he even noticed the door that was being held open for him, because they're just such no. big doors by this point, and they've been wedged open. It feels more like a corridor yeah. <laughs> for him. His reputation as a lawyer grew. Uh, he, he started doing all right for himself. Um, in fact, he made a name for himself in one big trial because a well-respected veteran lawyer named Thomas Campbell in Ohio was also very obviously corrupt. Hmm. Williams' firm decided to go after Campbell. A brave move. Uh, Alfonso was unsure of his son going after Campbell uh, because Campbell was very powerful and owned outright several judges. If William swung and missed here, it would destroy his career. However, after Alfonso advised his son this, William wrote back, It is time for men to have backbone and drive away the scourge that has been such an infliction on this community for so many years. Those who tamely cower in the face of attack I have no use for. I have gone into this thing fully realising the dangerous enemy that we will encounter. So there you go. Bit of backbone from young yeah. William there. Yeah, and don't make him angry. <laughs> exactly. Well, William was the junior of the three lawyers prosecuting the case, uh, but he threw himself into it, completely ignoring the political scene at the time, not getting involved in the general election that happened at the time. He just wants to focus on the case. And then as the case drew to a close, the senior lawyer prosecuting became ill, and William was suddenly called upon to step up in his place. 
Brilliant. Well, William stood up and Brilliant. delivered a four and a half hour closing speech. How do you write a speech that long? That's, that's <laughs> you're just reading an essay. Yeah, essentially, essentially yeah. Right. Um, this essay that he, he delivered uh, impressed many. Uh, apparently it was full of understanding of the legal details of the case. He did a very good job. So much so that many were actually unsure of the outcome. I mean, th this wasn't a trial by peers, it was going to be judged by three judges. It was well known that one of the judges was in Campbell's pocket. Good chance that maybe the second one was as well, uh, but the third one might not be. Um, and that was a very good closing by William there, so who knows, maybe, just maybe, you might have a chance. Then the verdict came in. Do you want to guess? Guilty as hell. <laughs> many were utterly stunned when it was found that Campbell was completely and utterly innocent of all charges. How dare you accuse such a great man? Um, so yeah, the, the whole thing fell apart, uh, unsurprisingly, yeah. because welcome to the Gilded Age. Uh, a, a time where people can be, like, prosecuted, plead guilty, in fact, and just all of a sudden, <laughs> charges just disappear. Anyway, William although angered by the result, understandably, was also quite pleased with himself. Uh, he'd been given a chance to shine, and he had shone. Uh, he said to his father, who was currently in Russia as the ambassador at this time, that he was pleased that he had made the stand that he had. Alfonso told his son that although he had lost, the community would remember the name William Taft, and that he had stood up for corruption. So, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. However, <laughs> William then was dismayed when one of Campbell's close friends and also his lawyer, a man named Foraker, became the governor of Ohio a few months later. Why is that bad? Because William was fully expecting revenge to come. Oh. Yeah, this is uh, Campbell's friend, the guy he's right. just gone after. Yeah. Right, I'm with you. However, um, much to William's surprise, the other shoe didn't fall. In fact, quite the opposite happened. The sandal lifted. I don't know what the opposite of a shoe falling is. <laughs> to William's utter surprise, Foraker contacted William with a job offer. A position had opened up to become a judge in the Ohio Superior Court. His dad's old position. Did William want to temporarily fill it until the next election for the post? Well, I bet even though he was sort of on the other side, he made him... It was very obvious he was good at his job, and it'd be a shame not to have that talent. Well, yes, that's it. And not only that, uh, it turned out that Foraker remembered William from when he was a court reporter, and had liked him then. And then, oh. when he saw this young man come out in the trial, was actually quite impressed at how how well he'd gone against his friend. So yeah, uh, Foraker decided to to appoint William to the position. Um, bit of politics behind it. Foraker also saw this as a way to modify the reformers in the party. William yeah. had just made a bit of a splash, fighting corruption, put him in the seat before the next election for a year. Reformers in the party will stop moaning quite so much. Uh, at 29 years old, William becomes the youngest judge on the bench. That's a yeah, it's a young age. Uh, meanwhile, William had met somebody. This person was a woman named Nellie Heron. The Heron family, much like the Tafts, were a prominent family in Ohio. Nellie's father was uh, also a very good friend with Rutherford Hayes. However, the Herons had fallen on hard times recently and were struggling financially. Because they were struggling financially, uh, this meant that their daughter, Nellie, despite having a thirst for reading and education, was told that there was not the money for her to go to college. 
Instead, she was expected to find a husband who she could settle down with. Of course. Now, Nellie wasn't too impressed with this news. She wanted an education, but there was not much she could do. Uh, then, at the age of 16, she went with her parents to the White House to attend Hay's wedding anniversary. Uh, like I say, close family friend to the Hayes. And this makes an impression on Nellie, a huge impression. Uh, so impressed with the president, who she called Uncle Rutherford, she told Hayes that if she had to marry, which she'd been informed she must recently, she wanted to marry a man who would become the president one day. Hayes apparently replied to her, I hope that you may, and make sure it's an Ohio man. And then he probably said splendid, and then just did a big wink and walked off. <laughs> um, so yeah, I, like I say, this trip, huge impact on Nellie's life. She, wrote, she writes later, I quote, Nothing in my life reached the climax of human bliss than which I felt as a girl of 16 when I was entertained at the White House. So she had a good time. However, all parties yeah. must come to an end, and she went home. Depressed Nellie was at a party a few months later when she met William. Uh, he impressed her uh, with his polite ways, but that was about it. It was just someone she met, and he seemed nice enough. There was nothing else there, apparently. Uh, and then the weeks and the months passed on. She uh, spent her time attempting to seem like the dutiful daughter, uh, but actually was waiting for times that she could sneak away from the house so she could smoke and drink with her friends. <laughs> she sounds great. Yeah. Uh, like I say, we're actually starting to see some feminist movements kicking in here. Now, at last, much to her relief, her family started to do a bit better, and she was told that she would be able to enrol into a couple of classes at Cincinnati University. So she did that with much glee, and then also joined a walking club that happened to have one of William's closest friends in it. A walking club? Yeah, oh I know. Goodness. Walking club. Uh, <laughs> a, a simpler times, isn't it? <laughs> well, uh, Nellie and William's close friend became close, uh, but no more than friends, apparently. But because they were friends, William started hanging around in Nellie's circle again. And again, William and Nellie found that they got on quite well. Uh, but by this point, Nellie had given up. She had decided, much to the horror of her parents, to become a teacher in a boys' school. This essentially meant giving up on ever marrying, as it would have been seen as a scandal. Because yeah. I, times yeah, back then... <laughs> they had these rules about yeah, female teachers and what they couldn't, couldn't yeah, do. Yeah, exactly. And marrying was one. Yeah, uh, so she was essentially giving up the idea of getting married. She would just go and become a spinster somewhere. That was her idea. In fact, I quote her, Of course a woman is happier who marries. But then she further wrote, If she marries exactly right. But how many do? And she just didn't want to make that gamble. Which That's is uh, very fair, fair enough. Yeah. By this point, however, William had obviously really enjoyed his time in this walking club and had realised that he had fallen in love with his new friend quote him, I was wakened to the fact that I loved her with an overwhelming force. Knowing that Nellie loved to read, he started just carrying books around with him just so he had a reason to talk to her. I'd like to think ostentatiously <laughs> just... the dog. <laughs> yeah, just holding out a spot the dog in front of him as he walked down the street. Oh, this old thing, yes. I'm onto my third page. Two weeks it took me. Well, apparently this works because the two become closer until 1885 and William proposed. Nellie was stunned. She had not thought of William 
in this way whatsoever. William oh, was her friend. Uh, she was going to become a teacher. She did not want to get married. Oh, she'd be, he'd been friend-zoned but didn't realise. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Uh, she had fully in her head decided that she was going to make her own way in the world by this point and didn't have to rely on the tradition of having a man to look after her. Uh, so she said no and then told William, never raise this issue ever again. Now, William got the hint. What Nellie was trying to say was, why don't you propose again shortly? (laughs) In front of lots of people at the party. (laughs) Well, he wasn't going to give up. Um, I have seen uh, in one history book that saying no was just uh, an accepted custom at this time, which could explain why uh, Roosevelt was turned down in the last episode. Mm -hmm. Um, But I can't help but feel this might just be historians trying to save face for the people they're studying. Um, I don't know. Uh, Who knows? (laughs) So maybe it's all part of the courtship ritual, but I get the feeling Nellie just was not sure. Still, William's not going to give up. And again, having his mother, Louise, as a teacher helped him because he was able to write to Nellie and show her that he fully understood her reluctance to marry. Uh, He wrote that when a man marries and chooses to do something wrong, and in fact I'll quote him here, it does not involve his whole life. With a woman, a mistake is worse than death, for in marriage she gives all. So just acknowledging the fact that actually, yeah, marriage is different for men and women, and I fully understand that for you this is a big commitment, uh, which is a good thing to acknowledge. And then, a few days later, he tried again, this time stressing how the marriage would be a joint venture of equal parts. Again, I'll quote, I love you, Nellie. I will labour for our joint advancement, if only you let me. And then he praised her character, her intellect, and her empathy, and the fact that she could not be won over in the space of a moment. Basically, he did a damn good job uh, at coming across as a very reasonable person. And eventually, Nellie's resolve broke. Uh, She agreed that they could wed. However, she insisted that no one know about it, even their families, until they were ready to formally announce it. Guessing giving herself a bit of wriggle room there. (laughs) Yeah, keep it a secret on anyone known to my friends. Yeah. No one needs to know. Uh, William, however, over the moon. Uh, He found it very hard (laughs) to keep quiet. But he managed, and eventually it was revealed... And their friends and their families were delighted. They thought the two were very well suited to each other. And the two wed in 1886. So isn't that nice? It worked. Yeah. So it was a year later that William received that news that there was the seat on the Superior Court for him if he wanted it. Supreme or superior? Superior. This is uh, state rather than... uh, national still uh, mm. highest court in in his area basically uh, the job his dad used to do uh, now as we've seen uh, being a judge was a dream come true for william uh, but nelly wasn't the kind of woman to lightly dream of marrying someone who would occupy the white house and then just throw it to one side she oh, was yeah. serious when she said this was her ambition uh, and she saw something in her husband and was convinced that he could go far enough if he took the right path However, being a judge was not the right path. Being a judge tends to mean that you're going to stay a judge. But in Nellie's eyes, it just wasn't quite glamorous enough. In fact, I quote her, I dreaded seeing him settled for good and missing all the youthful enthusiasm which a more general contact with the world would have given him. Uh, William, however, was not deterred. He took the job, he was very excited by it, and after a year, he was elected for another five years. 
Remember, he was just filling in temporarily for a year until the next election, but when the next election rolled around, he got it. That's pretty good. Yeah. He's obviously did a good job, or his leader's bosses thought. Whatever. Yeah, exactly. Democracy. <laughs> um, anyway, over this time, William and Nellie had a son. Uh, and over time, well, they'd had three children together over the next few years. And this generally was a very happy time for William. He was doing a job that he enjoyed. He had his new family. He had his wife. Yeah. Um, things were good. And then in 1889, a seat opened up in the United States Supreme Court. Uh, and this is a job for life, isn't it? You get yeah, it basically oh yeah, yeah. die. Yeah, this one is for yeah. life. And it is... Uh, you don't get higher uh, as a judge. This, this is... This would be his dream come true. Uh, he's only 31 at this point, though. Wow. Yeah. And he recognised that his chances were slim to non-existence. He compares it to the likelihood of him being able to get to the moon. But he pulled some strings and he managed to get word to President Harrison. Is there any chance, any chance at all, I might be considered <laughs> for this seat? He soon got a reply. I just said, ha, 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 ha. No, it wasn't quite that harsh. I mean, it was a simple no. I mean, you're still a kid. Uh, However, some people have started to notice your work, William. Uh, You're keen. You're young and you're keen, and some of us in the Republican Party like that. So why not become the Solicitor General? This would place William in a high-ranking place in the Department of Justice. Uh, The job of Solicitor General is to represent the government before the Supreme Court. So he'd still be involved in the Supreme Court, but he'd actually be uh, prosecuting the cases. Uh, For a 31-year-old, this is a very good job indeed. Uh, Again, I mean, the doors are just, just being smashed open for him, and he is just skipping through them. William was disappointed he didn't get the judgeship, uh, but not surprised. Nellie, meanwhile, was very, very pleased. This was the family's chance to get out of Cincinnati and make a name for themselves in Washington. So a nervous William started his job and over the next couple of years steadily improved. He did well enough. Uh, Again, didn't make any huge waves, just got on with the job. Uh, His biggest impact came from his love of being a judge, actually, even though technically he wasn't one. Um, If there was one thing that Taft loved, like really loved, it was the Constitution and the rule of law. Therefore, in 1891, when a case came to him uh, to prosecute, uh, he realised that actually this case shouldn't have won before. It shouldn't have been pushed this far. Uh, It's just inconstitutional that this case is in the courts. So rather than uh, trying it anyway, Uh, and just purposely throwing it, which would be dodgy. He did something called confess error. The United States were wrong to prosecute the case. We shouldn't have done it, shouldn't have got this far. Oops, sorry, throw the case out. Uh, And this actually set a precedence for solicitor generals to confess error that continues to this day. Um, So there you go, he he made a mark. So he's getting on with this, he's doing his job. Uh, Nelly's happy, he's happy, Uh, but then Alfonso dies. Oh no. Yeah, Uh, William obviously had been shaped by his mother in many ways, as we've seen, Um, but his fear of disappointing his father was very obvious. But they parted on good terms. Uh, despite being distraught at his father's death, there must have been part of William pleased that Alfonso expressed his love for his son just before he died. 
Anyway, William continues his work. Uh, He befriends a Supreme Court judge at this time called John Marshall Harlan. He was already well known for fighting for civil rights, disagreeing with the rulings of the rest of the Supreme Court's, frankly, dodgy decisions. Um, And in fact, uh, Harlan uh, dissented so often, he became known as the Great Dissenter. Um, So that's the kind of person William's hanging around with in Washington. But then, one day, as is quite regular in William's life, he was suddenly offered a new job. A seat on the Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit. Basically, this is as high as a judge you can get without going to the Supreme Court. It's uh, the step below. You're in charge of uh, judging cases, uh, looking over uh, Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky, and Tennessee. So it's bigger than just state, uh, but you're not quite in the Supreme Court, yeah. Again, William, very, very pleased. Judging was where his heart lay. He wanted to do it. And again, Nellie was disappointed. She thought that William was on the right track where he was. He shouldn't go back to Cincinnati and then become a judge. However, William was determined, um, and they do move back. And for the next eight years, Taft happily serves the court. Even Nellie admits later in life that this uh, eight-year period was probably the happiest Taft ever was. Oh, he just wants to be a judge, doesn't he? That's all he wants to do, yeah. Oh. Most of the big profile cases at the time were around the increasing problems with labour strikes, which we have covered in bits over the last few episodes. The biggest case Taft was involved in was uh, the Pullman railway strike that we have covered before. If you remember, yes. Pullman was uh, the rubber baron uh, factory owner who made the, yeah. the Pullman uh, rail cars. Uh, he ran the work camps and slashed his workers' wages. Uh, they went on strike trying to get enough uh, food to be able to feed themselves. Uh, the strike was being pushed back hard, so the strikers begged the railway union to help them out. The union did so, refusing to work on any train with a Pullman carriage on it, so essentially all trains in the country came to a standstill. Uh, Now, all of that's happened a few years ago, and it's taken a while to go through the courts, and this is when it lands in front of Taft. Uh, Now, Taft was okay for strikes to occur, obviously, that's all very legal, we're in America, freedom of speech, etc, etc. However, he had certain limits. Strikes could occur, according to Taft, as long as they stayed within the boundaries of the law, and this meant that workers could only strike from their own employers, but not support other strikes. Oh. Yeah. As you can strike on behalf of somebody else. Yeah, so the railway union striking in solidarity with a factory dispute was illegal, and Taft had no time for that kind of shenanigans. (laughs) Uh, Not only this, uh, but also, if any violence broke out whatsoever, in Taft's mind, that violated the entire strike movement. As soon as someone threw a brick at a window, that's it. Everyone's lost the right to strike. Right. Yeah. Um, Now, as a result, uh, despite supporting legal strikes, uh, in the reality of the time, he was very unsympathetic towards strikers. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the man who had been handed everything to him his entire life just couldn't understand why these workers were so angry and violent. Mm. All you need to do is work hard and things work out for you. He'd worked hard all his life and things have worked out for him. Yeah, I never got a leg up. I did it all by myself. Well, no, you didn't. You got inherited money. You opened lots of doors. You've done nothing. The problem is, and you see this with Taft, Taft did work hard. From everything we can see, he worked hard all his life. 
Um, However. But <laughs> that's not why he's doing really, really well. He's doing really, no. really well because of his name. He just yeah. so happened to work hard on top of that. Um, but unfortunately, Taft and people who thought and think like him seem to think the only reason why they're achieving is because of the hard work. And, uh, yeah, so because of that, he just could not see eye to eye with uh, workers who were striking. Uh, so much so that he wrote an Ellie about one strike in 1894. It will be necessary for the military to kill some of the mob before the trouble can be stayed. Topical. Yeah, yeah. Uh, if you're listening to this years in the future, there has just been a uh, New York Times opinion piece that sounds very similar to that uh, just been released. Again, hashtag second gilded age. Anyway, uh, by 1900, that's right, we're in the 1900s, Jamie. Yes. Uh, and he's not even president. Uh, by 1900, <laughs> Taft was uh, not only a judge on the Court of Appeals, uh, but he was also given a job as the Dean and Professor of Property Law at Cincinnati University. Oh, that sounds so dull. A job that required him to teach for an entire two hours a week. And you know he got a fortune for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, anyway. Dear property law. Oh, oh yeah. Goodness. Yeah, it's exciting stuff. Mm. Um, and then, out of the blue, as, as just happens again and again, uh, he was contacted with yet another job offer. Well, he works hard for it. He does. Um, President McKinley was present uh, by this point, and... Not for long. <laughs> <laughs> He's got a little bit to go, don't worry. Um, oh. And he wrote to Taft, asking him to come to the White House. Uh, now, Taft was confused. There was no seat open on the Supreme Court. So why else would the President be contacting him? He'd made it very clear that's what he wanted. So, a confused Taft headed to the capital. He was astonished when the president met him and offered him a certain job. McKinley had just created a commission to oversee civil government in the Philippines. And I want you, Taft, to go over to the Philippines and run the government there. Is, is this the, the, the same time where they're sending ships there and... The ships have already been. Oh, this is the fallout then. Yeah. Um, this shocked Taft. As a judge, he had kept out of politics formally, but he'd made it clear uh, his opinions that after the Spanish-American War, which has just happened, he felt that the United States should not annex the, the Philippines. Uh, in fact, he had written, We have not solved all the problems of popular government so perfectly as to justify our voluntary seeking more difficult ones abroad. Which uh, is a fake point. <laughs> Uh, so he told McKinley as such. It's like, you, you don't want me. You, I, I disagree with us being there in the first place. Uh, McKinley apparently replied, you don't want the Philippines any less than I do, but we have got them, and in dealing with them, I think I can trust the man who didn't want them better than the man who did. Which is a quote I, I guess. It's a quote I wish I'd come across when looking into McKinley, but like I say, that yeah. McKinley research was a nightmare. Um, <laughs> a lot but, of waiting. Yeah, um, but that, that that's uh, some good thinking from McKinley there, I must admit. Yeah. Anyway, Taft wasn't convinced. He loved his job. He was really happy with his life. He had literally no experience of anything like going halfway across the world to try and establish a civil government. He couldn't even yeah. speak Spanish. Uh, which would really hinder him. But then McKinley dangled the carrot. If Taft did this, and if the opportunity opened up, maybe, <laughs> just maybe, I'll appoint you to the Supreme Court when you get back. 
things could happen. Oh, that, and that's his dream job. Exactly. Now, it pained to have to do it, but this carrot was too good. It looked like a very tasty carrot. Uh, so, <laughs> Taft resigned from the Court of Appeals, Nelly and his brothers convincing him that this was definitely the right move. Nelly hoping again that this was a stepping stone for perhaps maybe a future run at the presidency. Uh, so, there we are. We're now in April 1900. William, Nelly Taft, and their three children set off from San Francisco and sailed to the Philippines. Hey, lovely weather, I hear. Oh, yeah. So, let's catch up on what's been going on in the Philippines, shall we? <laughs> Just as I said in Roosevelt's episode, we'll, we'll deal with that another time. Well, that time is now. Um, let's do it. So, uh, a quick summary of what's been going on in the Philippines since 1565. Uh, <laughs> brief summary, obviously. Okay. Uh, <laughs> but it's all very interesting stuff. So, in 1565, the Spanish discovered the Philippines and took them, as, yeah. as the Spanish did. Uh, it was seen as an extension to their holdings in the Americas, and therefore it was ruled from New Spain, not directly from Spain itself. However, when New Spain revolted and turned into Mexico, the rule of the Philippines transferred to Spain in 1821. Uh, under Spanish rule, in the Philippines, uh, schools were built, hospitals were built, churches were built, uh, roads were built, slavery was abolished. Um, basically, all the excuses you hear for colonialism. Yeah. Um, However, as ever, these excuses for colonisation ignore the fact that the native population were ruled over in an oppressive regime that was quite brutal. Uh, revolts mm. against the Spanish were common, as were wars with other European and Asian powers in the region. Um, in general, it's safe to say the Philippines were not doing too well under Spanish rule. Uh, the revolts Increased, and as they did, Spain attempted to maintain their hold on the area by increasing the number of Spanish-born officers on the islands. Uh, most of the officers before were Latino men uh, from the Americas, but now it was being ruled directly from Spain. Native Spanish-born officers were being sent over, and you can just imagine the problems that leads to. Now, we, we covered uh, the problems with Spanish rule in Cuba in Roosevelt's first episode, uh, so you can just transfer that information into the Philippines, essentially. Uh, things yeah. weren't good. Uh, then, in 1872, three priests in the country were accused of sedition, of fueling ideas of rebellion, and they were executed by the Spanish government. Wow. Yeah. Uh, who'd have thought it? Executing priests doesn't go down well. No. Unrest bubbles along for the next couple of decades, uh, until 1892, when a militant secret society was formed with the aim to kick the Spanish off the island. We are going to gain our independence. Then in 1896, this group declared their intent to gain their independence from Spain publicly, uh, after infighting for some control with this militant uh, secret group which resulted in one of their leaders being executed. A convention was held, and a man named Iguinaldo was placed in charge. I apologise if I am butchering that name. However, this new government that had been established was a, a government of a republic in name rather than reality. It had no real control over the islands. The Spanish did. And over the course of the following year, fighting Spanish forces, they did not do well, and the Spanish forces managed to take back control of the country. Guinaldo was forced into exile. Uh, some unrest was still going on, 
and the Spanish were attempting to put this unrest down when the Spanish-American War broke out. And out of nowhere, an American fleet suddenly appeared in Manila Bay and destroyed the Spanish fleet, which we covered in Roosevelt's episode. Iguinaldo rushed back to his country to lead the Philippine resistance fight once more. The Spanish hadn't suddenly disappeared, their fleet had been destroyed, there was still Spanish on the island, and Iguinaldo wanted to fight them and gain independence for the Philippines. So, with the United States holding Manila, um, the fight had gone out of the Spanish, and within three months, the Philippine forces had taken the islands. They had won their independence. Mm. Iguinaldo declared independence formally, a convention was held, and he was chosen as president. A constitution (laughs) was drafted. There we go. They've got their government, they've got their country back. Brilliant. However... (laughs) Hey there! (laughs) (laughs) Despite some informal reassurances from several prominent Americans to the leaders of the the Philippines, uh, in 1898 the Treaty of Paris was signed and control of the Philippines was formally handed from the Spanish to the United States. We didn't agree to that. Yeah, that was essentially what Aguinaldo said. He made it very clear that the newly established Filipino government saw this as none less than an invasion and an act of war. If the United States wanted the Philippines, they would have to fight for it. Okay. So fighting breaks out in the city of Manila. Um, (laughs) The United States general in charge, a man named Otis, declared, fighting as begun must go on to the grim end. Uh, Otis refused to talk to the Filipino Republic again. Uh, All ideas of negotiation goes out of the window and Otis cracks down hard. Um, The United States used their navy to bombard uh, one of the major cities in the country. Uh, However, the Filipino government soon realised that they were outgunned, if not outnumbered. So, they returned to the guerrilla tactics that they had been using against the Spaniards. Uh, The US, adapting to this, start using the same tactics that the Spanish had been using in Cuba that the United States press had been denouncing just months before. (laughs) This included segregating large portions of the population in an attempt to cut out the rebellion, to make sure they couldn't be supplied. Uh, Due to these large, and I'll quote here, zones of protection, um, (laughs) dysentery starts to spread. Civilian casualties start to vastly outnumber any of the soldiers from either side. Uh, Things are not good. Uh, Otis, the general in charge, continues to attempt to put down any resistance, refusing any negotiation. Aguinaldo, meanwhile, attempts to gain international support by inviting the Red Cross to come and see what was going on, hoping that he'd be able to spin the war in a very positive Filipino light. Um, Otis, however, wanted none of this, and when a representative from the Red Cross arrived in the Philippines, Otis stopped him and refused him from seeing anything. The representative was taken on selective tours, but did manage to see enough that he became convinced that the United States was systematically burning down villages. Harsh curfews were then put into place to make sure that the rebellion couldn't spark up again, that the United States started to feel like they had a handle on this situation. Uh, Mm. When I say harsh, I mean harsh. Anyone seen breaking the curfew was shot on sight. Bloody hell. Uh, Due to this, the United States 
really managed to get a hold on the country. As one soldier put it, and I'll quote here, we make everyone get into their house by 7pm, and we only tell a man once. If he refuses, we shoot him. We killed over 300 natives the first night. They tried to set the town on fire. If they fire a shot from the house, we burn the house down and every house near it and shoot the natives. So they're pretty quiet in town now. Yeah, you're looking quite horrified there. That that sounds almost very British. Oh, we are full on colonial now. Yeah, that's insane. We have gone full circle from the revolution. Oh my goodness. Anyway, this is where we get the opening. This is when yeah. Taft is arriving, oh. and this is what Taft and his family are walking into. Now, ju- just to be clear, Taft will uh, arrive in Manila. Uh, and set up uh, in a presidential mansion, essentially. A lot of the resistant fighting was going on on different islands uh, in the Philippines. Um, So he's not walking necessarily into a hot war zone, uh, but the country is very much on edge, and people are still dying in warfare when Taft arrives. To complicate things, the military is still in charge when he arrives. Otis, the general, is still in charge. It's under military control. Taft's job is to go over there and figure out how to set up civilian governance. Right. So at some point, the power needs to transfer from the military to Taft and whatever government he happens to establish. So, he arrives, he gets set up. General Otis is soon replaced with a man named General MacArthur, but for all intents and purposes of our story, they might as well be the same person. Yeah. Taft, like I say, represented a civilian government, and MacArthur represented the military one, and the two men did not necessarily see eye to eye when it came to the details of annexing this country. Uh, The military view was, you might be shocked to learn, uh, quite hideous. Uh, the locals must be crushed and beaten into submission. Taft, however, not believing in an expansionist United States, had different views. Uh, in hindsight, it's not great, Taft's views, to say the least, but in no. the context of the time, it was certainly better than the military's view. Uh, to sum up, Taft essentially wanted the Philippines to be a willing self-governing colony of the United States, a little bit like Canada and Australia were to Britain at the time. Independent almost completely, but not quite. Yeah. However, in Taft's view, Filipinos were just not capable of governing themselves right now. In fact, uh, Taft figured it would take at least three generations to get them to the point where they could govern themselves. In fact, I'll quote him here, it would take the training of 50 or 100 years before they realise what Anglo-Saxon liberty is. Yeah. Oh, arrogance. Yeah. I, it, it, like you say, we're getting to British levels of arrogance now, aren't we? Yeah. Um, anyway, uh, Taft, you'll be unsurprised to learn, was practically overflowing with his casual racism at this time. Uh, He referred to the Filipinos as, I quote, our little brown brothers, and generally had a very patronising air. You get the feeling, reading about this period, that Taft had no malice towards the local population, but the racism's just so ingrained within him, he just did not notice it. It's, it's awful. Maybe he didn't see racism, so he'd, he'd assume racism against, is against black people. Possibly more the fact that he 
genuinely believes as long as you have good feelings towards someone, you can't be racist. Uh-huh. Yeah. I'm not racist, but sort of thing. Yeah. It's like, how could I possibly race be racist? I want them to be independent in a hundred years' time. <laughs> yeah. Still, as uncomfortable reading and patronising as this is, it's nothing compared to the military at the time, who were just going full-on with their all-out-and-out racism. Uh, Upon hearing Taft's words uh, about the brothers thing, um, the common reply came from many in the army, uh, quote, The Filipino might be a brother of William H. Taft, but he ain't no friend of mine. Oh. Yeah. Uh, Now, although... Taft was certainly more sympathetic with the local Filipino population than the military. He still fought against any independence movement on the island. Uh, Like I said, he just didn't feel like the island was ready. Give give him a century. So after settling into his uh, mansion and getting a lay of the land, uh, Taft became convinced that most of the population, actually now he looked at it, were in fact fairly ambivalent to the idea of independence. Uh, In fact, he wrote home to the war secretary saying, as long as McKinley beats Bryan in the upcoming election, all this talk of independence will just fade away. Good US-centric view of things there. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Well, if you remember, uh, Bryan, the leading Democrat at the time, was very anti-expansionist, and he had made it very clear that if he was the next president, he would give independence to the Philippines. Ah. Taft, therefore, for some reason, managed to convince himself that as long as Brian lost, everyone fighting for independence in the Philippines would suddenly just go, oh, fair enough then, someone in America lost an election. In fact, I'll quote Taft here, the insurrection as a political movement will fade out in the course of 60 to 90 days, should McKinley win. The sheer hubris of this (laughs) is shocking. Well, McKinley won that election, as we know, and you will be shocked to learn the resistance didn't stop. There were people still fighting for independence. Election? Uh, What election, they were saying? Literally, what election are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) There was an election in America, was there? Oh, right, okay. Oh, our enemies. Wonderful. Well... Taft starts to get nervous at this point. General MacArthur was still pushing for more crackdown. MacArthur was convinced, unlike uh, Taft, that a majority of the Filipinos were actually hardcore independence radicals who were just itching to kill American soldiers at the drop of a hat. Uh, of a different view to Taft's. Um, So MacArthur just wanted to crack down on any insubordination. Taft, however, wanted to get to grips with creating this civilian government that's supposed to be being set up. He might even include one or two of the locals, you know, just to show... To teach them how to do it, essentially, was his <laughs> yeah. view. He wrote in his official report in January 1901 that the military presence was becoming a problem. It was the face of aggression and betrayal to the native population. He could not stress mm. enough that a civilian government really needs to take over completely. We need to take away the military presence. Uh, and his worries were well founded. Because in September of 1901, we're talking roughly the same period as McKinley being shot here, by the way, a town that was being occupied by United States forces rose up against the company holding them. Now, this town was a port town that the US thought were supplying the resistance. Uh, The supplies were being fed through this town. So, for a month, the United States moved in and just locked the town down. To begin with, not too harshly, 
but then one night, 80 men of the town were rounded up and placed in two small tents under armed guard and just kept in there. Quite cramped. This isn't going to get better, is it? No. Um, the resistance movement by this time had created a plan to liberate the town. Uh, they'd managed to smuggle themselves into the town dressed as women carrying coffins, uh, hoping that the soldiers wouldn't inspect the coffins too much. Uh, and it worked. On the dawn of the 27th of September, they attacked. The 44 US troops in the town were taken completely unaware uh, and were almost entirely wiped out by the ambush. Only four soldiers in the town escaped unscathed. Wow. The town then, understandably, was abandoned by the locals because they expected retaliation. Now, news of this spread throughout the Philippines. Many had started to believe that the United States hold on the uh, islands was complete. Uh, the resistance seems to be fading out, but suddenly it looks like fighting's going to flare up once again. People even in Manila uh, started wearing sidearms openly, expecting fighting to break out once more. Uh, Taft sent his family to Hong Kong, worried that things were about to go wrong. Now, MacArthur uh, had just been replaced as military governor by a man named Chaffrey. Chaffrey may as well just be MacArthur for all purposes of our story. Um, Chaffrey was outraged that his soldiers had been killed, understandably, and then placed a man named General Smith in charge of sorting the mess out. Ah. Smith issued his orders, and I'll quote, I want no prisoners. I want you to kill and burn. The more you kill and burn, the better it will please me. The interior of the island must be made a howling wilderness. <sighs> he went further to say that all capable of holding a gun should be killed. When questioned on this, I mean, what do you mean holding a gun? What do you mean by capable? This is a bit vague, sir. Smith replied that anyone over the age of 10 should be shot. Oh my... Now, no. the island the town was on was cut off. No food was to be delivered, starve the local population and the resistance out. US troops then poured onto the island and essentially were given free reign to do whatever they wanted. Now, you won't be shocked to learn that we have no clear picture of the death and destruction that happens after this. One soldier who was there reported that 39 Filipinos were killed, but that's just one report from a US soldier. We just don't know the actual number. Not pleasant though. Towns burnt no. to the ground, uh, people indiscriminately killed. It should be said, just for full transparency though, uh, majority of the soldiers just ignored this order from Smith, apparently. It was seen as going too far, even at the time. Um, but even if a lot of soldiers ignored this order, it's still giving free pass to anyone who was willing to do it. Yeah you got a few psychopaths on yeah, the team. Yeah, I mean, th th there was no denying that uh, war crimes were then committed. Uh, reports yes. of this atrocity got back to Taft and uh, then were sent on to the war secretary. In fact, questions were starting to be asked, generally, of the military. For example, uh, both Otis and MacArthur's official report stated that for every wounded prisoner taken, 15 uh, enemy soldiers had been killed. And the reason why this is noticeable is that this is three times higher than the normal amount in wars of that period. It's strongly suggested yeah. to anyone looking at these numbers that US troops were systematically killing wounded soldiers. 
Otis explained this anomaly by uh, stating that his soldiers were just damn good shots. Many of them were hunters from the south, don't you know? And we're, we're good. We're good at fighting. We're just too efficient at slaughter. That's the problem. Yeah. Uh, MacArthur went further, though, and just simply stated that the Filipinos were an inferior race and succumbed to their wounds much quicker than white men. Yeah. Anyway, Taft, not happy with the military power yeah. uh, in the country... Was still nervous. He's still trying to uh, set up a civilian government, but he was worried that if the military just disappeared, the rebellion would spring back. So in November, he passed the Sedition Act. It became illegal to speak for or act with any independence movement whatsoever. Despite this, however, Taft's popularity in the Philippines had started to grow quite a lot. He was clearly critical of the hated military, and most people in the country, like most people everywhere in the world, just want a roof over their heads, their yeah. children to be safe, and food to eat. Yep. I mean, that that's what most people yeah. want. This Taft fella seems a lot better than these military types. Also, obviously the Philippines weren't just one blob of people with, with all the same opinions. It's obviously far more complex than this. Uh, you had different class systems going on in the country who all had their own uh, views and opinions on what should be going on. Yeah. Uh, the elite class of the Philippines soon started to cozy up to, to this uh, civilian governor and the new civilian government being created, hoping to gain favour in a newly created government. Taft was cautious of this elite class, Good. thinking that they were all corrupt. Yeah. In fact, I quote him, they are born politicians, they're as ambitious as Satan and as jealous as possible of others' preferment. I think we can make a popular assembly out of them for the islands, as long as we restrain their actions. So, again, Taft is very, very cautiously thinking maybe giving some power to the local population because they probably don't understand how to rule. Oh, God. Um, he was worried that giving too much power to this elite class would create an oligarchy who would not provide for the everyday person. I'm guessing Taft was just ignoring the massive irony gong smashing away in the background as he had lived through the Gilded Age. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, there you go. Anyway... Taft helped create a political party at this time called the Federal Party, who stated that their aims were to accept US rule, thank you very much, and then who knows, maybe one day a statehood. Um, no. Taft downplayed the statehood part. He realised that <laughs> no, there was... No, 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 no. Well, yeah, he, he realised there was no way in hell that a US government was about to give the rights of a state to a country halfway around the world made up of people who were not white. It just yeah. wasn't going to happen. No. So Taft downplayed that part, but generally it was a very pro-US party. He created the party, and he attempted to make it grow as much as possible, uh, whilst at the same time suppressing any other political parties from growing who had ideas of independence. Yeah. Uh, to Taft's disappointment, though, the Federal Party, for some reason, were just not as popular as he thought they would be. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, Taft spent his time surrounded by uh, Filipinos who constantly were trying to get in with him. So everyone he met kept saying, oh yeah, we love US rule. Uh, he, he wasn't quite in touch or as in touch with the common Filipino person as perhaps he thought he was. Still, his civil government had managed to create several rights for the citizens uh, after a while, which is good. Taft was 
able to introduce the right for prisoners to challenge their arrest, a, a genuinely good thing. Yeah. And generally, some decent rights are brought in under this new government that's being created. However, Taft drew short of introducing the right to be tried by a jury of peers, stating that they just weren't ready for that kind of responsibility on this island. Also, it's probably not sensible to give them the right to bear arms, thought Taft, because just allowing everyone to just wander around with guns is obviously going to lead to disaster. Yeah. Anyway, back in the United States, as I said, McKinley had been shot. I mean, that, that happened at the same time with all the uh, the atrocities that were going on. And anyway, as, as we have learnt, uh, Roosevelt had become the president. Now, one thing I've not covered, uh, because it just didn't naturally fit in, is that when Taft was in Washington, he got to know Roosevelt quite well, and the two had become firm friends. Mm. So Taft was very pleased when he found out that his good friend Teddy had become president. Meanwhile, Taft's popularity in the Philippines grew. Again, the elite Filipino class saw him as a way to gain power, and the majority of the population saw him as an alternative to the military. So he genuinely did develop a good following. Uh, then, in the end of 1901, Taft suddenly became ill. Abscesses were discovered in his intestines. How, how did they discover? A rummage. I'm guessing a rummage. Oh. <laughs> um, well, he became ill. He went, headed back to the United States to get this looked at more. Uh, and then it was discovered the abscesses were there and he needed surgery. So he went through surgery. No grisly or fascinating tales, unfortunately. Um, it just was a fairly straightforward surgery. But he's in Washington to recover. When he was there, he met his friend and the new president. Roosevelt wanted two things from Taft. First of all, come home uh, properly. Come home from the Philippines. Because number two, I want you... Taft on the Supreme Court. <gasps> That's right, you've earned your dream job. Well done. He's like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. However, despite this being his dream job, Taft was unsure. Ooh. He felt that he had unfinished business in the Philippines. I mean, it just hadn't been settled yet properly. And he couldn't just abandon them in the Philippines. They loved him over there. Uh, you, you get the feeling that Taft had become used to essentially being the president of a country <laughs> yeah. and uh, yeah he, he was enjoying it so he mm -hmm. said as much to Roosevelt thank you very much but I really think I need to go back to the Philippines meanwhile in the capital uh, ongoing at the time were congressional hearings into the atrocities that had taken place on the islands and since Taft was in Washington he was called to speak before the Senate committee what exactly was going on over there uh, are these stories we're hearing true uh, Taft felt very flustered and uncomfortable while he attempted to defend the actions of the men under his government. He took it personally and became worried that he was not suited to politics because as much as he understood that this committee was just doing its job, he became angry and frustrated that he was being attacked. It's hard to take criticism sometimes. Yeah. Still, the, the committees go ahead. Um, as you can imagine, nothing really happens. Um, uh, then Taft was sent to Rome. Interestingly. Oh, that's a massive high-five. Yeah, massive high-five there. He's off to visit the Pope because part of the Philippines was owned by the Catholic Church still. Yeah. 
and the United States were more than happy to just take the rest of the Philippines, but maybe we should actually offer to buy this bit that belongs to the church. Hmm. So Taft and his family headed over to Rome, they met the Pope, they discussed the transfer of land, uh, they didn't get anywhere in this trip, uh, but they laid the foundations because a couple of years later the Catholic Church agreed to the terms. Meanwhile, however, Taft had headed back to the Philippines and continued his attempt to mould the civilian government. Aguinaldo, remember the uh, leader of the resistance, yeah. had been captured the previous year. Oh. Many had hoped that this would put an end to the unrest, but it didn't. However, Aguinaldo's replacement was a man named General Malba. He had taken over, the resistance had continued, but then in April of 1902, Malva surrendered. The war was officially declared over in July 1902. Uh, so there you go, the United States now has full control over the Philippines. Between 16,000 and 20,000 Filipino soldiers died, and between four and 5,000 US soldiers had died. And thanks to the disruption and the zones of protection, <laughs> and the also, let's just be blunt here, war crimes, uh, yeah. an estimated quarter of a million to one million civilians died due to famine and disease. That's a feather for the cat. But still, the war was won, and it's over. Yeah. Taft then got word from Roosevelt. I know you want to be involved in the Philippines still. Ooh. I fully understand that. So why don't you come home and become the war secretary? That way, you're still in charge of the Philippines, because the Philippines <laughs> is under the jurisdiction of the War Department. Yeah, war's over, but still. So, come on back. That's good enough for Taft. Uh, Nellie saw it as yet another stepping stone, so she was happy as well. The two of them agreed, it's time to head back. So in 1903, the Tafts set sail to the United States. And there you go, that is Taft Part 1. Wow. Not boring. No. Depressing. Yeah, that's that's a good way of, good way of I mean let's it. face it, Taft's life is essentially people opening doors and saying, Here, would you like this job? Yeah. But then you you've got the whole Filipino American war, which is just an such an underreported war. And it is I mean I I've had to leave so much out. It is a a, a fascinating war that really deserves a, a Mike Duncan treatment. Uh, it, it's interesting, fascinating stuff, uh, and also very depressing. I was going to go into this war anyway, because I, I, I figured this is something that's not often talked about. Mm. I need to find a, a time to talk about it. It was just perfect for Taft's episode, because yeah. he, he becomes the, the governor of the Philippines, uh, which is why I, I brushed over it so much in Roosevelt's episode, which arguably, since he's the president when it's happening... And McKinley, but arguably I should have mentioned it in their episodes, uh, but I was waiting for this episode to put it in. So yeah, an important bit of history. Is it, uh, the thing is, it, what, what happened there is probably just exactly the same what the UK did to India and oh yeah yeah this this is African countries we destroyed. This is as as horrific as it is. It is not in any way unusual. This nope. was happening all over the world by all of the imperial empires. And now the United States have jumped in as well. Yay. Yeah. I mean, you, there is, like like I said earlier on, we've come full circle uh, from the revolution at the start of the series. America are now essentially Britain. Mm. So there you go. On that depressing note, uh, we'll end this episode. Yes. Um... <laughs> Well, uh, thank you guys for listening. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Yes, and hopefully next episode's got some more light-hearted fun stories. Yes. I did look, honestly. I did. Um, 
that, that they're just there's not much in the way of light-hearted fun stories for Taft. There's no. a couple, but they happen in the next episode. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Anyway, thank you very much for listening, everyone. Do you want to tell a joke at the end to cheer us all up? What did the can say to the sheep? I don't know. Me neither. I'm trying to think of a punchline. <laughs> tell you what, dear listener. You think of a punchline, send it to us on yes. Twitter or yeah. on Facebook. So what did the can say to the sheep? Yeah. Excellent. There we go. What a light-hearted way to end yeah. it. Nice. There we nice. go. <sighs> Great. Thank you very much for listening. Next time will be Taft Part 2. All that needs to be said then is... Goodbye. Goodbye. So, Alfonso, got a new lady I hear. Oh, she's amazing, Hugh. Amazing. So, uh, what's what's the lovely lady's name? Oh, her name. Oh, a beautiful name. Fanny Phelps. Um, Fanny Phelps? Yes, yes. It's uh, a beautiful name for a beautiful lady. It, um, yes. Are you, are you not seeing the, the, the pattern here? What do you mean, a pattern? Well, with your previous girlfriends, I mean... What, as in Annie? Yeah. Oh, no, Fanny's nothing like Annie at all. Completely different. You'll have to meet her. No, but Annie's name was Annie Position. Annie Position, yes. Yes, no, she just wasn't suitable for me at all. In retrospect, I I regret ever. Uh, No. Anyway, no, no, you seriously must meet Fanny. She's much more like Jen. Uh, you you liked Jen, didn't you? You mean Jenny? Jen, yes. Taylor. The Taylor family. Jen. Jenny. Jenny Taylor. Yes. Jenny Taylor. Yes. No, Fanny's much more like Jen. You're, you're really, you're really like her. So you're, you're genuinely not seeing the pattern, are you? I don't, I really don't know what you're talking about. Okay. Number one, you had uh, Jenny Taylor. Yes. Then you had, number two, Annie Position. Yes. Number three, Fanny Phelps. No, still, still not getting it. Yes, but what about when you dated Von, who came from? Oh my God, you're absolutely right. I can't believe I've never seen I have a type before. Hugh, you're a good friend. It's not a problem. Just remember, your friend Hugh Jass will always be here for you. Fanny Taft, that became her name. Yeah. That doesn't sound much better. That's um, a disease. <laughs> <laughs> None of this can stay in. Okay. <laughs>